So how do we get from exegesis, from interpreting the scriptures to theology? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast. I I thought I'd do something a little bit differently today. And today, rather than focusing in on specific questions, we will take some questions, but I want to look at some larger issues. I want to look at larger issues of of how we do theology, how we interpret Scripture, how we can get, get from reading the Bible, understanding the Bible, to theology, to systematic theology, when these things can be useful, when they can hinder or interpretation of Scripture, I want to lay some things out. If you're a student of the Word, this will help you. If you are getting a, a doctorate in a seminary, this will help you. If you're a brand new believer reading the Bible for the first time, this will help you. All right, so let's throw some terms out. Exegesis is the interpretation of Scripture. It is reading out of the Bible what God put in the Bible. So we have X as an exit, right, going out. E-X, going, exodus, going out. So exegesis is reading out from the scriptures that which God put in there. So there's a plain sense, there's an intended meaning, and we're just reading it rightly. Now, eisegesis is to read into the Bible our own interpretation. Problem is, often we're not aware that we're doing that, right? Because we're reading it through our eyes. So we have to, we have to do our very best to read the Bible as honestly as we can, to pray that God would help us to receive what is written, to help uh, us overcome our biases and our blind spots so that we could take in what God's Word says. Sometimes we're so accustomed to hearing it a certain way, understanding it a certain way, that once you hear it rightly, it sounds wrong. It's like if you heard a song sung to the wrong melody for years, and then you hear it sung the right way, like that's not, that's not the way it goes. We can do the same thing with the Bible. We're so used to hearing it in a certain translation or with a certain interpretation that it doesn't dawn on us. That's not really what the text is saying. So it's important to keep reading, to read prayerfully, to read asking God for his grace and his help, not just to understand, but to receive and to act on what's written. Sometimes we know what's written, but we don't want to act on it. So reading the Bible as it is intended to be read understanding it, interpreting it as it is intended to be understood and interpreted, that's exegesis. Eisegesis is reading our ideas, our interpretations into the Scripture. Hermeneutics, big word, but it's simply a system of interpretation. It's really all it is. When we speak about hermeneutics, it is a system of interpretation. Are we going to read the Bible as literal, as poetic, as allegorical, as figurative, as metaphor, as myth, or is it that some of it is allegorical and some of it is literal? How do we read a history book versus how do we read poetry? System of interpretation. And then theology, which is literally the study of God, that's where you kind of put your conclusions together. Who is God? What are his characteristics? What are the things that please him and displease him? 
What are the ways that he looks at human beings? What is our state in terms of sin? What is the meaning of redemption? These are the conclusions to our study. Now, sometimes we come to faith in a certain church that has a certain theology, right? And they're really strong on that theology. They teach it, they preach it on a regular basis. They do a good job of indoctrinating their people with their theology because they believe it's true. So many people know the theology better than they know the Bible. Many people know the theological conclusions better than they know the scriptures that lead to those conclusions. So whenever they go to read the Bible, they read the Bible through that grid. In other words, their theology comes first, and then they interpret everything based on that theology. Well, the verse seems to say this, but my theology goes this way, so I'll have to reinterpret the verse. That's a dangerous position to be in. The best thing to do is this. Boy, that verse seems to challenge my theology. Let me put a question mark next to it and a question mark to that particular aspect of my theology that's contradicted here. And then let me look at other verses. What if you end up with what seems to be 50 or 100 verses that contradict what your theology has been and only two or three that support it? Then you have to say, okay, is my theology based on scripture or is it based more on, on church tradition, on people coming to conclusions for various reasons and then imposing that theology on the rest of scripture? Now look, all of us can do that. None of us are exempt. There's, there's a long German word, which means without presupposition, literally presuppositionless. And this was advocated by a famous critical German scholar decades ago, that you have to read the Bible without presupposition. In other words, you don't know anything about it. You have no preconceived ideas. You're just reading it for the first time and going with whatever it says. Now, that, that's a, a wonderful concept on a certain level. In other words, I'm not going to come in there with my biases and preconceptions. I'm just going to read it for what it's worth. The problem is none of us do that. All of us have some preconception, either that the Bible is God's word or that it isn't God's word or that it's a holy book or it's mixed or it's inspired or it claims to be inspired, but we're not sure. And, and it's, it's not as if we discovered this book. And, and none of us have had any exposure to it. And we start reading it for the first time. And mm, what is that? And, and, and even so, we still have the biases of how we were raised. Maybe we were raised in an anti-religious home. Maybe we were raised in a zealously atheistic home. Maybe we were raised in, in a zealous Protestant home or Catholic home or Jewish home or Muslim home or Hindu home or Buddhist home or whatever. Whatever our background is, we, we come with certain ideas to the text, which is why once again, it's good to pray. God, open my heart, open my mind. Wonderful prayer from Psalm 119. Open my eyes, literally un uncover my eyes, that I, may, that I may behold wonders from your teaching. As Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they would know him better. Lord, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know you better as we read your word. And Lord, give us the courage to follow you and to follow your truth wherever it leads. So first things first, before we get to theology, we have to do solid exegesis. We, we have to do our best 
to interpret scripture as given, as intended. Now, having been studying the word on different levels of intensity and focus for the last 47 plus years, obviously I have many conclusions to which I've come. Obviously I have strong beliefs, but when I am evaluating other positions, such as when I did my debate with Trinity denier, Dr. Dale Tuggy, so-called biblical Unitarian, I say so-called because I don't believe it's a biblical position that he holds to. But look, looking at his arguments, listening to what he had to say, listening to his critiques of Trinity and things like that, where it breaks down for me is I look at specific verses. I look at his interpretation of Hebrews 1, and it, it is utterly and completely untenable. Same with this interpretation of Colossians 1. Same with this interpretation of John 1. I, I find the interpretations utterly and completely untenable. Same with this interpretation of John 20, 28, and other passages. That there are passages we can debate, go back and forth. You have your view up. Yeah, that's a good argument. Here's a counter-argument. Yeah, but what about this counter-argument? And back and forth. And what does the text actually say? And let's debate it. Let's dig deeper. And this Greek word could mean one of two things. What does it mean here? This Hebrew word can, can have a different meaning in a different context. How should we understand it? You go back and forth. And I, I'm all for having serious debate and dialogue about different issues. And, and, and matters of, of real, real focus, you know, micro, micro focus down to the tiniest grammatical units and things like that. I, that's my background field. Absolutely. Let's do it. But when I see something completely break down, when I see a, 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 an exegesis or an interpretation of a passage and it completely breaks down to support a particular position with which I differ, then I, I cannot give that position any credence whatsoever. I cannot, I cannot even let it in the front door because it completely breaks down. Now, sometimes someone will say, well, here's an interpretation of this verse. I think, yeah, I never saw that before. I don't agree with it, but I see where you're coming from. I see where your position comes from. There's some weight to it. When I was a fairly new believer, and in the days <clears throat> when I was reading the word day and night, memorizing scripture day and night, and would, would spend at least six hours with the Lord every day in concentrated, focused prayer and study of the word, including one hour a day memorizing scripture. And I used to memorize 20 verses a day in the King James. God just gave me grace and focus to do that, did that every day without missing a day for six months. So I, I had a real strong grid. I was 17, 18 years old, and I had a real strong grid for interpretation. In other words, when you raise your position, hundreds of verses or thousands of verses are, are readily available in my head with which I can evaluate your position, uh, against which I can compare your, your viewpoints and your arguments. And I was listening to a Seventh-day Adventist talking about a particular point, a point with, with which there is difference within the church. Different believers over the centuries have differed over these points. It's not a matter of, of heresy. It's not a, a matter that would disqualify you for your salvation. And as a Seventh-day Adventist was presenting his viewpoint, it was different than mine. But as he went through the scriptures, I thought, okay, he makes a reasonable case. I see why he holds to that position. Therefore, I recognize that this is an area where believers can differ. That's one thing. And there are plenty of areas like that where believers can have differences. I see your point. I see the verses that you used to support your point. But here's why I differ. Uh, conversely, now your point so completely breaks down. When we come to these passages, which support my point and, and, and upon which I build my theology, that your interpretation so completely breaks down, it goes completely shipwrecked. Your boat crashes on the rocks 
and, and is now unworthy to sail. That's ultimately the deal breaker for me. And, and when I see that, whatever the argument is, whatever the point of view is, be it, be it a cult, be it someone holding to a professed other Christian position, be it someone from another religion that wants to debate with me what scripture says, when I see their position so totally and completely break down on certain passages, and if it's not just one, two, three, four, you know, there's no possible way to entertain their theological conclusions. You know that the theological conclusions must be bankrupt. Just like when I debated a full preterist the other day, and he's trying to argue that we're living now in the New Jerusalem, and that there's no more death or sighing or mourning or tears, and that the resurrection has already happened spiritually, there will be no physical resurrection. The position breaks down on text after text after text after text to the point that it's utterly and completely irredeemable. We come back, I'm going to talk to you about some important principles of studying the Word of God. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast. This is Michael Brown doing things a little differently today. Excuse me, wanted to lay some foundations in scripture and understanding for you. Talk about how we get from biblical interpretation from exegesis to theology. And, and some of what I say here and there will, will be a little bit dense, a little deep, but for the most part, I think that you'll all be able to follow me, whether you an advanced, you're an advanced theology student or, or whether you're brand new to the scriptures. First, let me, let me throw out another term for you, philology, philology. You say, what's that? Sounds cool. Well, it, it is the, the study of languages, the study of text in their original languages, it's a little different from linguistics, which is kind of the science of language and how it works. Philology is really the, the study of texts in their original languages. It's not the exact dictionary definition, but that's what I focused on in college and grad school. My bachelor's degree was in Hebrew. My master's and PhD degrees were in Near Eastern languages and literatures. And virtually every class we were reading text. We were reading texts in Babylonian and Assyrian, which is called Akkadian. We were reading texts in Syriac. We were reading texts in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic written in, in Hebrew characters. We were reading texts in classical Arabic. We were reading texts in, it's called Ugaritic, or some call it Ugaritic, a sister language to, to Hebrew. We were reading texts in different phases of the Hebrew language, from biblical Hebrew to rabbinic Hebrew. We were, we were reading ancient texts in and Phoenician inscriptions and Moabite inscriptions, these limited texts and things like that. Every class basically was reading texts. That's what we did. So the idea of theology came much, 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 much later. Even the idea of exegesis, interpreting the text came later. First, we were going to translate the text. First, we were going to understand what the text was originally saying. And then from there, we would do exegesis. We would do interpretation. We would try to understand what the text was saying. And in many cases, that was never even the issue. All we were doing was interpreting, meaning translating. All we were doing was just understanding what, what the text was said, what the words actually meant. In fact, I remember 
in a third year Arabic class I was taking at, at New York University that the professor would tell us, remember, one principle of translating is your translation must make sense. So if, if I'm reading a passage in, in Arabic and I translate it into English and it says, and when the up came down around and the sun was cloud and up said, yes, hello, what's now up around? Oh, obviously, I got it wrong. That, made, that's, that makes no sense whatsoever. That's just complete gibberish. So obviously, I, I, I didn't get it right. And, and we would read, maybe there was like this dramatic story and we weren't quite sure what the conclusion was that we'd come into class, all the students, and we've been working hard on the text. It's like, I think it said this. No, I think it said this. I think it said this. And we're like, well, let's find out what the professor says and who got it right, who got it wrong. Well, one time we came in and we were all baffled. We were all utterly baffled. And we were translating a text on, on the stations of the, the Sufi mystic. And so, th so this is kind of this spiritual, mystical Islam. And we couldn't make head or tail of it. We literally couldn't make head or tail of it. And we came in and the professor said, I have to apologize. He said, in this case, my rule doesn't work. The text itself makes no sense whatsoever. But the first thing is you got to translate it. Now you say, oh, Dr. Brown, I don't know any Hebrew and I don't know any Greek. And I don't think I could really learn the language as well. Well, bottom line is most people are not going to learn biblical languages. And even when you learn the biblical languages, you still realize that there are ambiguities and points of debate, etc. But here's the good news. We have lots and lots and lots of Bible translations. So what you can do is you can compare side by side lots of different translations from the King James to the New King James to the modern English version, which are all of a similar genre. Or you can compare the NASB and the ESV, which have a similar genre. The NIV breaks in a little different direction. The NET goes in a different direction. The CSB in another direction. The TLV, yet another. The, the Complete Jewish Bible, yet another. And, and on and on the translations go. And then the mild paraphrase, like the NLT. You can compare them side by side. I'm looking now at my Accordance Bible software. The folks at Accordance have been super, super helpful getting me oriented with their software after um, using some other software over the years. And I'm just looking at one window. You can open multiple windows. And I'm looking at one which is a translation comparison. So I've got up here uh, KJV, NKJV, NAS, ESV, NIV, CSB, NET, NLT, NRSV, TLV, and for the Old Testament, New JPS. Those are the ones I have up there. I could pull up more if, if I wanted to. And you say, I don't own the software. Okay, go to BibleGateway.com. Look up a verse you're studying, and then you'll see 20, 30, 40 different options of different translations, including translations into other languages. Maybe Spanish is your first language or something. Maybe you can read Arabic and it's up there. Lots of different options, all right? You can then compare. And if you will see the translations, one after another, after another, after another, after another, basically say it the same way, you can be sure. You can be sure that's what the original said. Now, if you see four or five and they each read it a little differently, now you can focus in and see, okay, what is it that's different? That word here or that phrase there. And you can see the different options. 
You say, then what do I do? Then read in context and see what makes the most sense in context. Now, if you're reading Proverbs, say Proverbs 10 or Proverbs 15 or Proverbs 25 or something, that's just single verse, single, for the most part, single verse, single verse, single verse. And there's not a lot of context for it. But if you're reading Paul's letter to the Romans, or if you're reading 1 Kings, or if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, or if you're reading the book of Exodus, you have context. You, you have what's come before, what's come after, and you can now evaluate that verse in context. You can see, okay, what seems to make the most sense in this particular context? It's, it's not that hard to do. What I'm saying is everybody can basically do it. You can compare different translations. When I was doing my translation for the book of Job, my commentary that's due out in, in uh, October, as I was working hard on that, I would look at the Hebrew, struggle with it, work on it, try to understand it. And then sometimes I'd look at a bunch of different translations and see how the translators looked at it and see was there was there something I was missing or maybe there was a nuance that, and then I compare and think about it and do my best to come up with, with what I felt was the best understanding of the verse. Here's, here's another principle. When the same author is using the same word in the same context, in the same book, it, it likely has the same meaning. For, for example, the, the Hebrew word for righteousness, tzedek, it can have varied meanings. It can simply mean righteousness as in one's righteous deeds. Sometimes it can, it can speak of, of, of victory or triumph. Uh, tzedakah can speak of righteousness, but more in a sense of righteous acts like charity, things like that. Dikasune uh, in Greek, righteousness, sometimes it can be leaning in a legal direction, you know, righteous meaning not guilty and things like that. But when you see, say, Paul, in Romans, writing about the righteousness of God. So many translations will do their best when it's the same context and the same word being used to keep translating it the same way so that you know that's the point the author is making. And, and that way it carries through well. For example, when, when Paul is talking about strength being manifest in weakness, it uses the word weakness over and over and over in First and Second Corinthians, and to be weak over and over and over. You have, for example, he talks about boasting in his weaknesses in the eleventh chapter of Second Corinthians, in the twelfth chapter of Second Corinthians, and, and then uh, the King James translates changes from weakness to affliction, even though it's the same word. And you can suddenly think he's talking about physical illness. It would have been better there to stay with weakness because that was what Paul was saying. And you'll see other translations do. Now, for the most part, the King James does well with that, that if it's the same word in the same context, it'll often be very consistent with that. And some other translations, they want it to have a better literary feel and more of a free flow, and they vary the words. But context is really, really helpful. Look, reading the word with common sense is one of the best ways to read it. If I had a choice of being able to read fluently in Hebrew, there's a little Aramaic in the Old Testament, so say Hebrew and Aramaic, and, and read fluently in Greek for the New Testament, but have no common sense in my reading of the Bible, or read the Bible in a good English translation with common sense, I would take the latter. Because a lot of what's written is just written in a common sense, plain and direct and straight way. And, and often we're trying to 
deduce all these mystical spiritual meanings and these elusive truths and when it's just common sense. You know, Nancy's often said to me many years ago, you know, you're very smart, you're very dumb. So the ways I'm smart, my mind works well and, and it, it's sharp and it's good. There are other ways it's like, oh, we, I ordered this mat, this gym mat for working out in my garage. It's eight feet by four feet, right? So in my mind, when the box comes, the box has to be at least eight feet long. So it arrives yesterday and it's, it's four feet tall. I said to Nancy, it must be rolled over. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, it's got to be rolled over because it's eight feet tall. She said, how wide is it? I said, four feet. She said, four feet rolled up. I said, oh. I, said I could not for the life of me figure out how it was going to be anything less than eight feet. And she just shook her head with a smile. So here I can read all these ancient texts in the original languages, but I didn't figure that out. Common sense goes a long way. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire. We're talking about studying the Word of God today, going from exegesis, so interpreting the Scriptures rightly, to theology, to building our system of the things that we believe and hold to. And I want to give you some practical guidelines, some things that have been really helpful to me over the years. Now, look, some of you have a lot of training in systematic theology. That's great. You have a large grid. You, you have ways of looking at, at who God is and who man is and what is the nature of salvation and redemption and things and, and, and good, clear methods of thinking. That, that's wonderful and very helpful. The, the question is, is it all grounded in solid interpretation of Scripture? Again, we go from interpretation of Scripture to our conclusions about the nature of God, about the nature of sin, about the nature of redemption. We start with what the text says and we go from there. And often, a good way to understand what the text says is, is to do micro-studies of individual verses. You, you dig into John 1.1 as deep as you can get and always in context. You dig and you dig and the grammar and the meaning of logos and, and on and on and on. You, you look at one particular section in scripture, one particular theme, and you go through it over and over and you dig and you dig and you dig. That's very helpful. And then there's, so that's the kind of the worm's eye view. And then the bird's eye view. You, you just keep reading through the Bible, reading through the Bible. I recommend that just as a lifestyle. Be reading through the Bible, whether it's annually or whatever your pace is. And then be doing focus studies on things you're interested in. The reason it's good to do both is because if you just keep reading through the Bible, you'll never stop long enough to really study the difficult passages or the more meaty issues or the things of special interest to you or the things that God's speaking to you about. You'll never do that. On the flip side, if you spend all your time digging, digging into one passage, you know, studying Ephesians 1 for a year, then you kind of forget what's in the rest of the Bible. So that's why it's good to just be reading through the Bible regularly so you keep the bird's eye view, but then also regularly be digging deeper. Now, for me, with my training in language and, and writing my doctoral dissertation on, on one Hebrew word in its ancient Near Eastern context, I've done a lot of word studies. 
I've done word studies that are found in the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, as well as a contribution to the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, just based on word studies. And then word studies incorporated throughout my Job commentary and Jeremiah commentary and, and things like that. And again, for those who aren't aware, Jeremiah came out in the revised edition of the Expositor's Bible Commentary a few years back, and my Job commentary due out October of this year. All right, so let me give you an example of, of how I went about this, because it's the kind of thing that anyone can do. Maybe not in the depth that I did it because of my language background, but the same principle holds true. All right, so, so here's what happened. I had been praying about what subject to dive into for my doctoral dissertation. And my professor had basically told us doctoral students that you'll know it. You'll know it when you get your subject. It's kind of like falling in love with someone. You'll know it when it happens. And he said, if, if you were working on something and it turns out someone else already wrote on that, and you're like, ah, no big deal. Then that's, that's not your subject. You want to be passionate about it. You, you want it to be your baby. So I, I was, maybe this, I was talking about one subject with him. He goes, mm, maybe it didn't really think it would fit me. Maybe, ah, oh, about that. And then, then I was on my knees one day. I'd been praying about issues having to do with, with divine healing and what scripture said what the Bible actually taught about that. What was the meaning of Isaiah 53? Was it spiritual only? Was it spiritual and literal? Was it literal only? Praying about that. And I had open the Hebrew concordance I was using. Now, in, in those days, so this was in the early 1980s. Actually, I wrote my thesis from, from 83 to 85. So you know, early 1980s, 82, early 83, somewhere around there. We didn't have Bible software. In fact, I didn't get my first PC until 1985. So let alone Bible software, we didn't have PCs. We didn't have personal computers. So no, I'm not talking about the 1700s. I'm talking about 1983, 1984. I got my first computer when I was working on my doctoral dissertation in 1985. And I still remember I paid $3,000 for it. Don't ask me where we got the money from in those days. Not making much. $3,000 got my first PC. It was a compact. It was, of course, monochrome, so it was whatever the color got, like this golden colored screen, tiny little screen, tiny little screen. You're, if, if you have a smartwatch, your smartwatch has thousands of times more memory than that computer did. It didn't have a hard drive. It had two floppy drives, 256K each. So you'd put in the word processor program in the one and your disk in the other uh, for your, whatever you're writing. And if you had to do a spell check, you basically didn't have enough room for everything. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what it was like. And I, I still remember I did some of the best research I ever did on the Ugaritic, Ugaritic language and the occurrence of the root Rafa in Ugaritic. And I had been working on a bunch of stuff and probably an hour, hour and a half inputting data and a stack of books piled up. I was inputting and it's just, just, just hit a key and it heard like a funny noise. And it's like, what? And I hit, what, what was, and I looked, like, uh-oh, my computer froze. My computer just shut down. I just lost everything I discovered the most insightful work I'd ever done. And, and I remember thinking, I don't think I fully recovered it. I, I think I've forgotten some of the great insights I got. But bottom line is after that, I, I incessantly would say that every new sentence has been a habit for decades. And every new sentence, control S, control S, just save this kind of, and now I've got it set where it saves automatically as you're making changes. 
Anyway, anyway, long story. When do I get to tell it? So I'm on my knees praying. I've got the concordance openers, the Mandelkern concordance. And I'm looking at the usage of the, the Hebrew root Rafa in the Hebrew Bible. All right. And it occurred verbally about 67 times and then some nominal forms, some forms as nouns. And as I'm looking, I'm thinking, oh, isn't this interesting? Here it means heal like physical body. Here it means repair like a broken down altar. Here in this form, it means make undrinkable waters drinkable. It's like refresh. Here it's talking about men, there's a split in the earth, like mending the earth's fissures. And then, and then I thought in, in Arabic, it means this. In Ethiopic, a South Semitic language, it means this. I just had that in my head. It's like, wait a second. The fundamental meaning here is to restore, make whole, out of which we have meanings like heal, repair, mend, restore. And, and it, it all came together for me. So what I've done over the years, as I've done word studies, sometimes the word occurs several hundred times, the root, like barach, to, to bless. And I wrote an article on that in a theological dictionary. So what I, what I do sometimes, the, the verb or the noun occurs 20, 30 times, a lot easier then. But you try to look at all the different usages in their original context, in the original language, and then say, what do these words have in common? Is there a common denominator between them? Is there one fundamental meaning and all the other meanings are now secondary to that? Is, is that the case? And for me, the big insight was that fundamentally, Rafa did not mean to heal, but to restore, make whole, out of which came these other meanings. And therefore, when God said, I am the Lord, your healer, it didn't just mean physical bodies. Remember the context, Exodus 15, 26, all the diseases I put on Egypt, I won't put on you. What were the diseases? I mean, those were plagues of all kinds. It wasn't just physical illness. Those were natural plagues and different things. God said, I won't put those on you because I'm, I'm the Lord, your healer. Healer ha had a broader meaning than just physical. It, it, it became very easy for me to understand how these ideas flowed together. So the, the point is simple. I, I looked at, I looked at, the word, and so how they were used. What does the word soul mean? Nefesh in Hebrew, suke in Greek. What does the word spirit mean? Ruach in Hebrew, pneuma in Greek. So what you do, and, and there are even concordances like this, the Englishman's Greek concordance, or the Englishman's Hebrew concordance. Or if you have any good Bible software now, you just click on the particular Hebrew or Greek word that you're looking at, right? So you're looking in English, you find out what the Hebrew or Greek word is, and then you click on that and say, I just want to search for that particular word. And then you see all the ways it comes up. And each one you have an English translation keyed to it. Again, it's very easy to do with biblical Bible software these days. And now you look, okay, wow, here, here Ruach means wind. And here Ruach means spirit. And here Ruach means breath. It can be the same with pneuma. Hmm. And then you think, okay, so what's like the fundamental concept or meaning of this? That, that helps you. And, and then, and then you look and you think, okay, what, what does it mean in this verse? Genesis 1, 2, And the Spirit of God hovering over the face of what, is that the wind of God, the breath of God? Is it the Spirit of God involved in creation? What's the best way to understand that there? So for me, that's been very helpful to do intensive word studies. And yeah, I've got more ability to do them because of my background 
than your average student in scripture. But again, these days with Bible software, it's not that hard to do. You pull up, say, let's say you're looking up something in the New Testament Greek. So you pull up the English translation. Next to it, you, you want to look at the New Testament Greek. And then you hover over the English word you're interested in, and it'll tell you, okay, this is the, the Greek word. And then you click on that. Okay, I want to search for every time this word occurs in the New Testament. And then it'll list it all on one side in Greek. But you also get your English open. So each time you're clicking on the Greek, it's bringing it over to the English. Think, oh, means this here and this. Oh, so that's what the word really means. Or that's what it means in this context versus in that context. So you, you use these things as building blocks. You, you put these things together. And, and then whatever, remember, remember whatever conclusion you come to, it has to make sense in context. All right? So, so if, if you said, ah, now I see the real meaning of this word is sumo wrestler. That's it. Got it. Sumo wrestler. That's what this concept really means. I've discovered it. So now let's see how it works in context. And the sumo wrestler was a wonderful ballet dancer and was able to pirouette on one foot as she jumped and swirled. Oh, maybe it's not sumo wrestling. Maybe, maybe I got that wrong. So if you come up with some amazing insight and it doesn't work in context, don't try to change everything. No, no, no. Realize you made an error somewhere. But otherwise, you'll see, oh, that's why that translation says it like that. And that's why that translation says it like that. Now it makes sense. Now I see where the difference is. If you dig, friends, you make all kinds of discoveries. So we come back, I'm, I'm going to sum this up as we talk about going from exegesis to theology. But I, I want to give you some practical thoughts, some practical tips, some practical understanding and studying the scriptures. And, and, and even if all you have is an English Bible, a good English translation, you pray for insight, you pray for wisdom, you pray for a heart to receive, you read that word, you take the words in, and God's word will change your life. We will be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back to The Line of Fire. Hey, friends, I hope you have found this helpful as we talk about studying the Word and how to study the Bible and use different translations and use Bible software. I want to go from here and, and talk about how we get to theology, how we get to the conclusions, how we put some type of system together. All right. Uh, before I do that, may I encourage you, we are listener sponsored, viewer sponsored. We do what we do through your help. When I was in Israel, what a blessing to meet some of those on the tour who said to me, Dr. Brown, just want you to know I'm a proud torchbearer. I support your ministry and I'll continue to do it as long as I can. What a blessing. And, and to me, that's a sacred entrustment. I'm so conscious of how your funds are used for the gospel. So thank you for partnering with us. We're, we're reaching a lot of people by God's grace. Literally every week, we're reaching millions of people through our radio broadcast, through our articles, through social media, through other means, through books, through speaking. And you're a part of that. When I go to Nigeria next month, by God's grace, they, they don't have the money to bring me over. But there's a real urgent need to, to minister to thousands of leaders and help deal with some error that's rampant in that country where God is moving so powerfully. And, and folks said, listen, we want you to come over, uh, but we can't, we can't pay for your airfare, obviously, let alone 
given on a rare into the ministry. So that's, that's money that we have to bring in. And then while I'm away, things we have to cover. And that also means that I can't be speaking in the States where we can raise funds for the ministry. So you help send me to countries like Nigeria. You help send me to countries like India. Uh, other things we're trying to work out to go do debates on difficult subjects in different areas where, where it's evangelistic. We have to sponsor it. You help us. So would you join our support team today? If you can help with a one-time gift or better still become a torchbearer, one of our monthly supporters, every month we send you a brand new audio message. We can do it all digitally. So wherever you are in the world, we can do it digitally. You can take classes that we have, audio and video classes online for free. A number that we have, you can take. You get a 15% discount on our online bookstore. We also have some exclusive content only available to our Torchbearers, every month we send you an insider prayer letter. So join us a dollar a day or more per month. So $30 or more per month. Torchbearers, you, you are the backbone of what we do. And I know as you give, you pray for us as well. So join our team today. Go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Click on donate. All right. So how do we go from exegesis to theology? Because God's word is divinely inspired. It does not say a bunch of disparate, contradictory things about God. It does not say a bunch of disparate, contradictory things about the nature of man. It does not say a bunch of disparate, contradictory things about the nature of salvation. Now, there are different nuances, and some authors will, will emphasize one point versus another point. Critical scholars will say there's a fundamental difference between Paul and James, Jacob. Or they'll say there's a fundamental difference between Jesus and Paul or there's a fundamental difference between Leviticus and Deuteronomy, or there's a fundamental difference between Ecclesiastes, Job, and say, Psalms, or things like that. Uh, critical scholars will read these things differently, but those of us who believe that God's word is divinely inspired, and we see the evidence from it in the text, that, that we then read it and understand that we put the different nuances together to paint a larger picture, but overall, we believe it's one picture that's being painted. So what conclusions do we draw about God? Well, what we do is we look at the verses that state things the most plainly. For example, we know from Scripture that God is love. That's a forthright statement. We know that God is holy. We, we know that God is righteous. We know that God is eternal. We know that God is omnipotent. We know that God is omniscient. We see these things stated in, in plain verse form, in plain text form. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, Psalm 90. Uh, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The, these are things that are categorical statements about the nature of God. So what we do is we put these things together and we build the big picture. This is who God is. This is how God operates. This is what God requires of us. This is the nature of human beings. Here's what we're capable of. Here's what we're not capable of. Here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. Here's what salvation is. Here's, here's what is secondary in terms of, of issues that, that are not pertinent to that, that are interesting, but not pertinent to that. And then you put together a systematic theology. Now, here's the problem. The Bible itself is not a, th a systematic theology textbook, right? It is not written for that purpose. 
Jonathan Edwards during the Great Awakening addressed critics and said, look, the, the Bible is not a book of physics. It, it, it is not a book about anatomy and, and about the human body and how it responds at certain times. So Jonathan Edwards was careful to point out that in times of revival, God did not give us a Bible that said, now, when the Holy Spirit is moving, the pulse will be between this and this. The eyes will flutter at this rate. The heart will beat at this rate. There will be tears. There will not be tears. There will be shaking. There will not be shaking. He said, no, no, no. That wasn't the purpose of the Bible. Rather, the purpose of the Bible was to help us be watchmen over people's souls. And that's what you judge by. So did people fall or not? Not the issue. Did they shake or not? Not the issue. Did they weep or not? Not the issue. Did they cry out or not? Not the issue. What's the issue? What do they believe? And how do they live? That's the issue. That's how you judge. If you see people converted from darkness to light, from rejecting God to accepting God, from bowing down to the Jesus of the scriptures after not following him, to living holy, godly lives devoted to him, to being transformed, then that was the Holy Spirit that did the work because the flesh can't do it and the devil won't do it. Pretty simple. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's, that's the, the bottom line there. All right. That's, that's the bottom line. The same way the Bible was not given to us as a systematic theology textbook, meaning we may not be able to put everything in a neat compartment, but for the most part, because God is speaking through his word and the word is inspired, we can draw conclusions about God. And then those conclusions become our theology. There is one God and one God only. We recognize that he is complex in his unity, that he is a triunity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, the Spirit is not the Father, etc. And, and we base that on interpreting verse after verse after verse after verse after verse. Now, you're going to have areas where there's more controversy. The nature of the law and the believer's relationship to the law, for example, where that fits. You can, you can do a poll of believers about the Sabbath, 10 commandments. Are those binding today? Well, everything but the Sabbath. Well, yes, Sabbath is spiritually applied. Yes, Sabbath, but Saturday changed to Sunday. Yes, Sabbath, but it's still Saturday. You're going to have disagreements over these things, but there'll be general agreement that by the works of the law, no flesh is righteous, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. There will be questions about Jewish believers living as Jews. The, Gentile believers do it as well. Is it okay for Gentile believers? Should Jewish believers live like Jews or should they leave all vestige of Jewishness live like Christians? You have these debates, but we still understand that both Jew and Gentile need Jesus as Savior. There are differences between Calvinists and Arminians, as you know, but not in terms of what salvation fundamentally is and who Jesus fundamentally is and our lostness and what it means to be saved. How much victory can we have over sin? Can it be that we don't sin at all? Is sin always going to be something we deal with, wrestle with? What we all agree with is that sin is damnable, that in ourselves we can't overcome it, and that through Jesus we're cleansed and washed from sin, and that through Jesus we have power over sin. And then there are specific things we walk out and differ with. Now, yeah, I have convictions about different issues and things I hold to, but plenty of things I... I hold too lightly. They're secondary matters, tertiary matters. 
Professor Craig Keener and I have a book coming out March 19th. I encourage you to get it, especially if you're interested in the end times. It's called Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Trib Rapture. We clearly lay out why, having come to faith in pre-trib churches, dispensationalist churches, we abandoned that system of interpretation decades ago based on our study of the word. That being said, we both know and love and honor dispensationalist scholars and professors and believers. Some of the finest Christians on the planet hold to a pre-trib rapture. And probably some of my best friends, I don't even know some of what they believe because we never discussed it, hold to a pre-trib rapture. We don't divide over that, but here's why we believe what we believe. Other things we divide over. Other things are life and death matters of the faith. And to deny them is to deny the fundamentals. But all of it, all of it comes from careful study of the word, exegesis, interpretation of scripture, digging into the languages, reading in context, the context of the book, the context of the chapter, the context of the larger flow of the author. All of that, those are the building blocks for theology. And the theology is that final structure. Hey, friends, something you'll find really helpful is to go to askdrbrown.org, all right, askdrbrown.org, and just click on the search engine, right? You'll see the, the, the search icon and type in debate, debate. And you'll be able to watch many, many debates that I have had with many, many different people, be it rabbis, be it within the faith, like with my friend, Dr. James White or Pastor Bruce Bennett, or debates with those where we have stronger differences, like those denying the Trinity, full preterism, all the debates there, you'll find it really helpful. You'll see for me, it's scripture, scripture, scripture. Start with the word. Everything builds on that.